Today's sermon text comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death in Hades. This is the word of the Lord. We are going through our final book of the Bible, spent an entire year going through one book at a time, maybe two a couple times, and this all comes to its culmination. As we're in Revelation, I found these in my office, they were given to me, entire book of Revelation, journal books, so you can write your notes on the side with the text on one side. So I have four of them. Is there anyone who would like to take notes in one of these bad boys today. I'll hand them out. Nice catch. Anyone else? Two more. Oh, here we go. Normally, this is not like the price is right. One more. Hand up. Nicole wants it. Awesome. Helps empty my shelves, too. All right. Now that they are ready to get the best note-taking done on this sermon, we can begin with a word of prayer. God, I thank you that we see Jesus as the Lamb slain standing at his throne, ordering the affairs of men and controlling all things according to his purpose. We do not need to fear. God, I pray even for our own hearts to receive this message. I pray for my words to be empowered by your spirit that we would delight in him more and we would be more ready to engage the battle in the Lamb's victory. We pray for all of our world leaders, presidents, governors, prime ministers, kings, parliaments, congresses, that they would recognize they are under authority of an eternal cosmic king. And they would lead according to his wisdom. They would repent of their selfish pride and their, their, their fleshly passions and they would lead your church to victory in Christ, to peace on earth. We pray that that great work would start with us right now, hearing this word and going home and loving our spouses and our children and working diligently in our jobs 
that Christ and his dominion would be on display in our lives. Amen. In the final Rocky movie, Rocky Balboa, the boxer, he's talking with his son at one point. His son is really wrestling with his identity as an adult. He's faced a lot of hardship in his young adult life, and he wonders if all the work he's doing and all the trouble he's facing is really worth it. He wonders, actually, if perhaps all of his hardship is caused by his relationship with his father. He's embarrassed what other people have said about his dad's work. And so in this emotional, climactic scene, he approaches his dad to confront him and seek some sympathy and support. But instead of coddling him and coming to his rescue, Rocky strengthens his son for battle. While some of his son's concerns might actually be valid, their answers are ultimately unhelpful. Rocky wants his son to face every challenge, no matter who is at fault, with a resolve to press on toward a better life. So he stops his complaining and gives him this inspiring, motivating speech. He tells his son, the time has come for you to be your own man and take on the world. You did, but somewhere along the line, you changed. You stopped being you. You let people stick a finger in your face and tell you you're no good. And when things got hard, you started looking for something to blame. Let me tell you something you already know. The world ain't all sunshine and rainbows. It's a very mean and nasty place. And I don't care how tough you are, it will beat you to your knees and keep you there permanently if you let it. You, me, or nobody's going to hit as hard as life. But it ain't about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. How much you can take and keep moving forward. That's how winning is done. Now, if you know what you're worth, then go out and get what you're worth. But you got to be willing to take the hits. And not pointing fingers saying you ain't where you want to be because of him or her or anybody. Cowards do that and you ain't like that. You're better than that. I'm always going to love you no matter what. No matter what happens, you are my son. So Rocky reminds his son of his unconditional love for him and assures him, you already have everything you need to overcome challenges in life. This is the purpose of the last book of the Bible. To tell you that the Father has loved you unconditionally in Christ and you have everything you need right here to overcome every obstacle in life. Being a Christian ain't all sunshine and rainbows. Despite what some pastors have may have taught you, Jesus didn't come to give you your best life now. John writes this letter to us to show us that this world is a very mean and nasty place and none of us are, are strong enough to withstand its hits. There's a very real spiritual battle happening all around you every day of your life. Some of you feel it a little bit more than others. And it does you no good to complain about how hard it is or how embarrassing your church family is or how unfair life is. Satan will not relent. And the world will not comfort you. But a better world lies ahead. It's guaranteed. 
You have the love of the Father and the power of this lame land, slain lamb in heaven, helping you endure to that new world. And so John is writing to inspire us to engage the battle in the lamb's victory. Engage the battle in the lamb's victory. We're going to continue to explore that inspiration from the book of Revelation by starting with just chapter 1, verses 12 to 18, and use that as a, a springboard into the outline of the book. In verses 12 and 13, we just take a brief look at the, the Lamb's army. These ordinary, redeemed people of God, whom Jesus represents as their mighty king and holy priest. And then in verses 14 to 16, we get to witness the Lamb's authority. The mighty King of heaven and earth exercising His strength on behalf of His people all throughout our world. And finally, we get to engage the battle with the Lamb's assurance in verses 17 and 18. We're called to resist the world, overcome the devil with the promise of our very own resurrection to eternal life. This is such an exciting book. I don't want you to be intimidated or confused by it. It's easy to just kind of dismiss it as, well, that's really weird and confusing spiritual code. Or it's just far off events happening in a different part of the world long in the future. John intended this book to be an encouragement to every believer, even you here today. It doesn't have to be confusing. Revelation is best understood by reading your Bible, not the news, which is really helpful that we've been going through the entire Bible over the last year. Revelation is the culmination of the entire Bible story, the culmination of all of world history. And the book can only make sense if you know all the images That have been presented in the Bible. All of the storylines. All of the patterns. And what the main ideas are. Revelation is taking imagery from Genesis in the garden. And in Israel. The people of Israel. And the blessings put on his sons. It borrows plagues from Exodus. And imagery from the deportation to Babylon. It recalls prophecies from Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. It's presenting the church's current struggle As a replay of everything that God's people have faced since the beginning when Adam and Eve succumbed to the devil's temptation. But this time, by the righteous, slain, and risen Lamb of God, His people find victory over that old dragon. And this is the battle that we are called to engage. So let's see how this battle goes first by looking at the Lamb's army in verses 12 to 13. Let's read God's mighty word again. He says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. So in the verses leading up to this, we, we're given this assurance that God is eternal. Jesus is alive. The Holy Spirit's going throughout the world, accomplishing all of his purposes. But then you find that John was arrested and he's exiled on this prison island. What's happening? I thought God was in control. 
And so the Spirit is giving him insight into why he and so many Christians are facing trouble. What he sees, he's supposed to share with seven other churches to encourage them to greater faithfulness. This vision is full of all kinds of confusing numbers and images, but they're not meant to be actual counts, actual values of things or literal depictions of how things are. The imagery is meant to strike an emotional response in you to guide you to action. The number seven indicates wholeness or completeness. Similar with numbers 3 and 10 and 12. Or the number 1,000 is a complete, whole, large number that God really only knows the value of. But it is certain in his mind. The images are meant to make you understand the character and the nature of something. Not necessarily a particular person. The identity of someone in history. So like the lamb slain is obviously Jesus who died on the cross but is now alive. The dragon is Satan who's powerful and crafty and strikes fear into people's hearts. Beasts are really just people who have so turned their lives over to Satan. They've turned against their image-bearing nature and they have become like wild animals. And so John enters into this wild experience hearing the powerful, wise voice of King Jesus behind him. And he turns around thinking he's going to see something glorious and he sees seven lampstands. That's bizarre. Well, Jesus tells us in verse 20 that these lampstands are a symbol for the church. The church is called to carry the light of Christ into the world as his witnesses. And there's seven of them. Not to point out seven different churches, but again, this number seven, complete wholeness, all the church throughout all of time and all over the globe, their light is still burning. The gates of hell have not prevailed against them. Despite all the duress they are under, they are still carrying the torch of Christ. But that's because in the midst of them is the victorious King himself. Where God's people are gathered, there he is in their midst. Behold, he is with us always, even to the end of the age, he promised. Here we see it. Jesus standing in the middle of his people as their perfect representative. He wears a long royal robe symbolizing his perfect reign over them as the human king. A golden sash around his chest as the the holy priest that guides us into God's presence. It's not the people's purity, the people's own righteousness, the people's own strength that keeps them standing with the king. It's Christ himself and his spirit that keeps them faithful. And this becomes evident in these following chapters, in chapters 2 and 3, that address the faith of seven different churches. Jesus calls attention to these various churches in Asia that are facing trials and temptations Various struggles that they face as a picture of all the challenges the whole church will encounter throughout history. But this is the Lamb's army. All of us in our weakness are the people who are called to represent Him on earth. And we are under constant attack from Satan. Who uses persecution and false teaching and sexual temptation, worldly success, apathy... Disordered desires, social pressures, all kinds of tricks to keep you from advancing the gospel and staying faithful in the battle. 
But at the end of each of these letters, they are promised victory if they cling to Christ. He alone has the power and authority to keep them faithful and strong. So we see that authority on display in verses 14 to 16. We see the Lamb's authority. Come back here in the text. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held the seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. After John writes his seven letters to the churches in chapters 2 and 3, the scene dramatically shifts in chapter 4 to what we read in our call to worship. God the Father on His throne covered in bright, brilliant, dazzling lights. The throne surrounded by myriads of saints, people, and angels singing His praises, Holy, Holy, Holy. If you remember your Bible, it sounds quite similar to Isaiah chapter 6. And then in chapter 5 of Revelation, you turn the page and an interesting person comes onto the scene. God is holding this scroll, sitting on his throne, and the scroll represents his power of decree to, to declare what will happen on earth and execute his judgments. But an angel says, Who's going to open the scroll? The angel begins weeping, or John begins weeping because no one can open the scroll. Because remember, way back at the beginning, God made people to be his authorized rulers on earth. People were meant to execute his judgments and exercise his authority on earth. But not a single one of us is holy enough for the responsibility. But then one who is righteous arrives. The angel calls him the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Remembering more promises about this coming human messianic king who will be from the tribe of Judah, says the book of Genesis. The root of David, says Isaiah. And Daniel had a similar vision to this when he saw in in chapter 7, one like a son of man who is riding on a cloud into the throne room of God, and God gives him all authority over heaven and earth. And he executes perfect justice on earth. And now we get to see who he is. In clear words, the angel says, he's a lamb standing as though it has been slain. With seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into into all the earth. Clear as mud. The dramatic imagery here is of Jesus. It reveals to us that Jesus is fulfilling all the Bible's promises through his death and resurrection. Jesus is the perfectly holy representative of God. He lived perfect throughout his life, yet he died as the spotless lamb who takes away the sins of the world. He rose from the dead, ascended into heaven to take his place and reign over all the earth. The seven horns represent power, his perfect power over everything. His seven eyes symbolize that he sees everything that happens in our lives. The seven spirits 
are his Holy Spirit going throughout the earth, accomplishing his purposes, carrying out his decrees. This is the king who stands and fights for his people. He's the lamb slain who is standing. That's his identity through most of the book of Revelation. Jesus' righteous sacrifice and his resurrection are a clue into how we are going to overcome the world. Throughout Revelation, you see that the greatest victory comes through apparent defeat. Just when Satan seems to have grasped the upper hand, even through the death of Christ and all of his saints, there's there's saints being killed left and right throughout the book. And yet, a resurrection defeats Satan and leads God's people into their greatest victory. This seems like a strange, dangerous, foolish plan to worldly eyes. But it is the wise, powerful, unshakable plan of God. And this is what he wants us to see from verses 14 to 16. This white hair on this king symbolizes his eternal wisdom. His flaming eyes see through every evil plot. His bronze feet are immovable. His plans secure. His rule is mighty. His roaring voice commands all the affairs of the earth. He holds in his right hand seven stars representing the perfect, complete, angelic army ready to be dispatched into any battleground in your life. His mouth carries a sword assuring his word will bring bring perfect justice to his enemies. And his face is like the sun shining the glory of God into our lives leading our path to victory. This is the king and his army that lead us through every battle in our lives, which are described in chapters 6 to 20. The the majority of the book is these constant battles between good and evil, between the lamb and his army and Satan and his minions in defense of his people. This is, these scenes are meant to give us spiritual eyes so that we can see the very real battle raging all around us every single day. Their visions are designed to give us a proper balance on how we see the world. And we typically fall into one of two errors, opposite errors. Some people make the error of completely ignoring the spiritual world. Especially in our modern, secular culture, we think everything is just science, medicine, engineering, politics, art. What, what Revelation tells us is that all of these are actually religious battlegrounds. Telling us, try, or that are trying to draw us into conforming to their rules and rituals. Giving us despairing warnings and threats of danger and judgment. False hopes of health and security and prosperity. If Satan can get you to believe that a war in Ukraine or the coronavirus or inflation or a cancer diagnosis or marriage difficulties, parenting trials or your frustrating job are the most important thing going on the thing that defines who you are and what you should be doing, then he has delivered a great blow to your witness. As long as you see yourself as a victim in this world, a victim of the world, then you're living in spiritual defeat. 
But the other mistake is to believe that there's a devil under every bush. That you need to learn some super secret spiritual warfare code and tactics. Spending your entire time in a monastery or out on the mission field or... Or maybe just even acting like, I'm invincible. Nothing in this world can harm me because I'm so spiritual. Many of us get caught up into wanting to be part of some powerful spiritual victory experience. But we forget the very real, ordinary, physical ways in which we were made to exercise dominion on the earth. We forget that Jesus' victory is accomplished as a slain lamb. We die to ourselves. That's how we fight. We die. And we give ourselves to serving God among his people and building others up in whatever circle of influence we have, starting in our home with our families and in our churches and in our own neighborhoods before you can worry about what's happening on the other side of the planet. God has his people there too. These middle chapters are all full of these crazy judgments that are not meant to be seen as some far off on the other side of the planet battle that's going to happen long in the future. They're telling us what we are experiencing today. That they're simply replays of all the major conflicts in biblical history. The seals and the trumpets and the bowls are using judgment imagery from other Old Testament stories like the flood or the exodus or the Babylonian exile to show you that just as all of those wicked nations came to an end, so will the evil of our day. So will all the things that strike fear into your heart today. The beasts and the harlots and the scorpions and locusts are not literal creatures or even particularly specific individuals in history, but the type of characters that you see throughout the world as people and organizations and governments embrace human wisdom and affirm fleshly passions. They deny their image bearing and become more beast-like, swarming with one another in mobs to their own destruction. But it will not always be so. Finally, at the end of these great battles, we have the guarantee that the judgment will be swift and complete and everything will be made brand new. This is the Lamb's assurance we read about in verses 17 and 18. It says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys to death and Hades. Now, just like Rocky Balboa's son, you, you kind of get a taste of reality and it really strikes fear and discouragement into your heart. For John, the weight of the world And then the presence of the Almighty God in his life, right before his face, made him fall down like he was dead. He realizes, if there are two teams in this world, good and evil, and Jesus is standing here on the good side in all that power and glory, and I realize I'm a sinful man, I am not on the winning team. G.K. Chesterton once quipped when someone asked him, what's wrong with the world? He said, I am. 
And you are what's wrong with the world. All people are what's wrong with the world. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are all on the losing side. But then we see this incredible comfort. John says, but he laid his right hand on me. It's not a minor detail. The right hand signifies all that power that Jesus has as the king of heaven and earth. Remember, the right hand holds the command of the angelic armies. Yet he doesn't use that right hand heavily on him to lay execution at his feet. He lays it gently on him. He uses that strength on his behalf. This strength gives comfort to those who trust Christ. First, we have the comfort of his divine power and presence. Jesus says, I am the first and the last. He's God. He's eternal. He's unchanging. If he promises to be your defender and your savior, he's not going to change his mind and become your executioner. If all these things, you don't have to fear that all these things happening in your life are God's judgment on you. If you are in Christ, he is working all things together for your good according to his purposes. Jesus is using his strength for you. And he reminds us of this in the gospel. He's alive. Yes, he was dead, but he is, and he is the slain lamb, but he is alive forevermore. He rose from the dead. He ascended to his throne in heaven. And if you surrender your life to him, all of your unworthiness, all of your rebellion, all of your sin, slain with him, buried in the grave, washed by his blood, his resurrection purchased for you a brand new life. He puts his spirit in you. He recruits the entire angelic army to come and fight by your side so you can overcome every temptation. His death and resurrection gives you the battle plan to engage the battle in his victory. Though Satan may press in on us, when we stand firm in Christ's strength and we retake his dominion over the earth, in our little corners of the world, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our church, we proclaim That our hope is in Christ, not in politicians, not in governments and in corporations. We stand on what is right no matter what. And resist the devil and all the beastly passions of this world. Which is his final assurance. Jesus says, I have the keys to death in Hades. I determine the hour of your death. And I determine what happens to you when you die. Those who trust in him will be raised like him from the dead to eternal life. If you end up like John, exiled, arrested, imprisoned until you die, if illness overtakes your body, if your commitment to your church family and the mission that we are on infects you with disease, if you are killed for your faith or a tragic accident overtakes your life, you have not lost. You have just secured your victory. Jesus wants us to follow this path. This is how we win. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. It is a spiritual battle, but it does have very real, humbling, physical consequences. But that's okay. Because we are guaranteed eternal justice and reward. 
chapters 22, 20 and 22 highlight the fulfillment of all of the Bible's promises. Chapter 20 ends with the great white throne judgment where finally Satan will be defeated and he and all of his demons will be chucked into the lake of fire where they will be tortured forever. But along with him goes all of humanity who refuses to repent and trust in Christ, surrendering their lives to him. Those who cowardly sink into victimhood and and embrace their beast nature this is not what you were made for. And if that's the life you embrace, you are not, you will not fit in a new creation, but will endure eternal torment with bodies that are never consumed by the fire. But for those who repent and put their faith in Jesus, these are the greatest promises to cling to. Chapters 21 and 22 display a beautiful promise where heaven comes down and unites with earth and makes it all brand new. There will be no more injustice, no more temptation, no more pain or sadness or death. This place will be like a new temple where we get to experience this, but in such a more infinite, fully pleasurable way where we live in peace and joy and harmony with God forever and with his people. We get to enjoy the pleasures of this creation made new without any corruption of sin. It will be like a a new garden of Eden flourishing with life everywhere. People from every nation joining their voices together to sing and, and play together, enduring in bliss forever as kings and queens over this earth. These are the promises that are meant to motivate us to engage the battle in the Lamb's victory. This world ain't all sunshine and rainbows. You were born into a war zone that began when Satan tricked Adam and Eve. But in Christ, you've been reborn as a conqueror in his army over sin and Satan. So engage the battle. Recognize the battle with this beastly world all around you. Yes, humans are brilliant creatures. Incredible. But we've become so proud of our technological advancement and our intellectual sophistication. We think it can save us from everything. But we're still slaves to death. Afraid of death. And we do everything we can to avoid it. And our nation is given over to every kind of perverse sexual passion. Affirming it even in the highest seats of authority. We claim allegiance to the wrong kinds of identities. We spend our efforts trying to bring utopia on earth through human wisdom and strength. Don't buy what the world is selling. Despite the promises of freedom, it is all enslavement to a beastly, damnable destiny. Join the battle with us. And destroy the idols in your own life. And confront the idols in the world. Stop complaining that things just aren't fair because judgment is coming and all will be made right. Stop complaining that you are being victimized and take Christ's dominion back in your life. Resist the devil and the world with the slain lamb's power. This is a huge calling. It demands your whole life. But your role in it is quite simple. 
We just start small. He says, Jesus says, whoever is faithful with little will be trusted with much. You may have heard it said before that everyone wants to save the world, change the world, but nobody wants to change a diaper. Maybe some of you just need to learn how to change a diaper in victory. Kids especially. Maybe my kids particularly. Learn to make your beds really well and do dishes without complaining. Start small. Take dominion over your own life and in your own home. And then after that, you can expand your influence. Start reaching out to your neighbors and pulling them into your home, meeting them in the parks, offering them victory in the security of Christ's victory. Pour into your church family. Find something here to take ownership of, to tie your heart deeply to Christ's mission, to the Lamb's battle. Maybe some of you then will be ready to take the next step. And start taking dominion over the city. Not through a sword or through a firearm. But through starting a new business or a new ministry to declare Christ has authority here in this city. Stop complaining that your boss is so mean or you don't get paid enough. Or you wish someone else would start this kind of thing in town. Or that your company is just given over to wokeness. You do it. You start one. Don't act like a victim being pushed around by your employer or the city council. Let's not wait for the governor or the president to decide when it's healthy to fight for Christ or what's most valuable for us to pursue. Those authorities lead from a beastly perspective. But you are a redeemed image bearer in the Lamb of God, a beloved child of God, restored rulers on this earth to reign in the city. Start something better that shows the world the goodness, the beauty, the power of Christ in your life. And if Satan strikes a a heavy blow and takes it all away from you, you know it's just a temporary defeat. And your conquest will be complete in your resurrection. The Bible ends with a return to the beginning. Ending in a garden, just like it began in Genesis. In Christ, we are restored to our original purpose to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth with worshipers of Jesus. Take dominion, subdue the earth, defend the garden of God's people from that old serpent. Display the creative power of God in your life. You are not a victim. You are a warrior. You are loved by the eternal father. You are redeemed by the blood of Christ to slay idols in this world. You are empowered by his spirit and you are victorious over the devil. Go in this world and engage the battle in the Lamb's victory. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this wonderful opportunity to preach through your word and to shape our hearts as one family, as the body of Christ, as the Lamb's army. Strengthen us for the battle. Remove the idols from our lives. And inspire us, motivate us, and empower us to restore Christ's dominion in every corner of our lives. Amen.